Let us open the precious Word of God to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We have read two sections this morning thus far in Psalm 119. And I exhort again as part of this sermon that you familiarize yourself with that wonderful passage of Scripture and how it exalts the written Scriptures of God, calling the Word of God the Word, the Law, precepts, judgments, statutes, commandments, and so forth, that we might learn it and stand upon it and hate every false way, as we're taught in 104 and 128 of that psalm. I exhort again that young men learn that. A young man named Elihu is one of the heroes of Scripture, because in the presence of four of the wisest men on earth, named Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, he listened to their opinions for 30 chapters or so. And then he was so angry, he couldn't restrain himself any longer. And he said, I waited because you're older than me, but you didn't know what you were talking about. So now sit down and listen, and I'll give you my opinion. He said, there is a a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. God will seldom inspire you directly. And he's not going to inspire you directly like he did the prophets and apostles of old. But he has given you his inspiration in writing. And young men, feast upon it. Read it. Meditate upon it. Hide it in your heart. Learn to think in scriptural terms. Learn to speak in scriptural terms. It'll save you. It'll make you wiser than your enemies, ancients, or teachers. You know, when we were in Malaysia a few weeks ago, I, I asked several because it's, it's interesting and amusing to me to find out a person that knows two or three languages, which language they think in. And so I would ask some of these that knew Chinese, Malay, and English, which language do you think in? And it usually depends on which one you know the best and is that you spend the most time in because even those who, even the Chinese, would often tell me that they thought in English because they learned English well enough and they spoke English enough that they thought in English. And I simply use that little illustration for reminding you that if you'll read the Word of God and and be using the Word of God, by reason of use have your senses exercised to discern good and evil, you'll think in scriptural terms, you'll think in Bible verses, you'll think in Bible phrases, And then you'll speak in Bible terms and phrases. And you'll have a ready answer of the certain words of truth to those that ask you. Proverbs chapter 22 describes us aiming for the goal of having the certain words of truth in our tongue. Not the vague words of, I believe this, or we believe this, or we believe that. So what? It doesn't matter what we believe. What does God say? And we want the certain words of truth to be able to give a reason not an opinion, but a reason of the hope that is within us. 1 Peter 3.15 Why we are not Reformed Baptists is our study for this day. The Reformed Baptists are often confused with us or us with them because especially we preach the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners. But there are differences, and we want to identify those differences for your understanding and for the understanding of others that will hear this preaching. 
We turn first of all to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and by way of introduction, just give me a couple of minutes to point out this fact. The New Testament's warnings about heresy are not very often intended against idolatry, paganism, or outright devil worship. The New Testament's warnings are against a mixture of truth and error, which is much more subtle and difficult to identify and then to defend against. Which counterfeit bill is going to be the most difficult to identify and to explain and point out to others, the one closest to the original or one farther away from the original? You know, if we were dealing with JWs or Mormons this morning, there are so many things that we differ on, and those things are significant and great in magnitude, it would be easy to make the distinction. With the Reformed Baptists, it takes a little bit more work, and you have to think a little closer. But it's why we need to preach it. I don't really see much profit in preaching much to you about the Jehovah's Witnesses and all their errors. You should already know that. Or the Mormons, you should already know that Joseph Smith is a little too young for him to be associated with the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't spend much time. But when it comes to something like this, where there is a group of Baptists, and we are Baptists by practice and conviction, we need to point out some of those differences. And so when we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's jealousy over the Corinthians that he says in verse 2, he's jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. The apostle was afraid of the Corinthian church that if a false teacher arrived teaching a different Jesus and a different gospel, and another spirit came with that man, they might well bear with that man and put up with that false teacher. Notice, it's not an overt devil worshiper. But false doctrine is of the devil nonetheless, because if you just drop down 10 verses to verses 13 through 15, it describes the devil and his ministers appearing as ministers of righteousness and as an angel of light. But it's this error here of another Jesus, of altering the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, another gospel, altering the purpose and the intent Content of the gospel and another spirit. When we make a distinction like this, there are many that cry out, look at all the divisions and differences and doctrinal distinctions. It proves the insanity of Christianity. The Roman Catholics love to say, we've held the same doctrine for 2,000 years and look at all the splintered fragments of the Protestants, and they'll add them all up and say it's 1400 versus one. Well, they don't know anything about their church history and all the changes they've made in doctrine over 2000 years. They've had female popes and triple popes and false popes and 
they've changed their doctrines back and forth and some of the doctrines they believe today have only been enunciated and pronounced as true dogma of that church in the last 200 years. But we have an answer. There is a spirit that walks about this earth as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he's the father of all lies. And he has spewed out lies of all sorts on every point of doctrine, and that's why there is so much division. There was division in the New Testament, as we see the doctrinal errors that are described there by our brother Paul. He said we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God in 2 Corinthians 2.17. Even in his day there were many corrupting the Word of God. We see the devil as an opponent against the truth of the gospel, and therefore we are not surprised at all to find so many different varying themes, doctrinal divisions, different churches, denominations, names, and practices. Because men have foolish and deceitful hearts. Men would rather have fables than the truth. And the devil wants to help them toward that end. And so we're not surprised. All we're going to do is stand on Holy Scripture. And we don't care where others stand. Although rivers of waters run down our eyes as we see them turning away, it's not going to influence us to turn with them. Last Lord's Day, I briefly, and everything in this study has to be brief, or we're going to end up preaching all the ancient landmarks of our faith all over again. And I don't want to do that. I want to make mention of them. We covered the Scriptures. The Reformers love to cry out, Sola Scriptura! Only Scripture! You have to ask, what Scripture are they talking about? You have to ask, do you mean Sola Scriptura the way Martin Luther meant it? Come on now. There isn't a thing in your Scriptures about infant baptism. How'd you come up with that doctrine? Don't tell us about Sola Scriptura. You know that in the New Testament, there isn't even an indirect mention of infant baptism. We covered last Lord's Day the begotten God of the Reformers. Because they held to a state church that started under Constantine, which sat in a council in 325 A.D., and chose Origen's language to describe the identity of the Son of God, they ended up with a begotten God. Because they believe and they enunciate and pronounce and define that the second person in the Trinity and the Lord Jesus Christ in His divine nature was eternally generated by the Father before all worlds, in eternity. Now there is no such thing as eternal generation. That's about as true as grape nuts. Being grape, they're neither grapes nor nuts. You cannot have eternal generation. Generation is an act of time requiring a father and a mother. Can't be eternally generated. If it's eternally generated, when was he generated? Well, he's he's eternally being generated. And the Holy Spirit's eternally proceeding. Where is that in the Bible? The Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God. The message of the New Testament is so simple. And notice that Paul just warned us here in 2 Corinthians 11, lest we be moved away from the simplicity that is in Christ. The true doctrine of the Sonship of Jesus Christ is this simple. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. The second person in the Trinity is not the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. 
The second person in the Trinity is the Word of God. He was God. He was with God in the beginning. He is Jehovah in the fullest sense of the words. His name is the mighty God and the everlasting Father. Isaiah 9, 6. Jesus is the Son of God. But until Mary had a baby, there was no Jesus. There was the Word of God. Then the Word of God was made flesh in the incarnation in Mary's womb when God and man came together and the holy thing that was born of her shall be called the Son of God. Luke 1.35 So the message of the New Testament is to Philip the Evangelist to the Ethiopian eunuch, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. The eunuch, back to Philip, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Philip baptized him. I sent you a verse this week from 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, that whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? What is our faith? What is the object of our faith? How do we overcome the world? What do we believe that overcomes the world? That Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus until Joseph married a woman named Mary, and the two of them had a little boy, they named him Jesus. There wasn't a Jesus. There was the Word of God. Now don't you try to go and tell me that I don't believe in the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. I believe in the eternal nature of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. But His human nature began 2,000 years ago. And it's the combination that makes up the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ. God is eternal. God the Father, God the Word, and God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus had a beginning. Jesus of Nazareth had a birth certificate. Jesus of Nazareth was laid in a manger. Jesus of Nazareth was swaddled in baby clothing. He was born. He he came. Every Old Testament prophecy was always in the future. God would have a son. A son would be born. A virgin would conceive. All in the future tense. We understand that. We deny their begotten God. We don't, we wouldn't accept any Bible like the New American Standard Version that in John chapter 1 and verse 18 says that the begotten God, our God wasn't begotten in any sense of the word. Jesus was begotten by the power of the highest and the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary so that her conception did not involve a man, but involved the power of God. We believe in the only begotten Son of God. And when did we behold the only begotten Son of God? When the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, because He was the only begotten of the Father. And all those verses in the Bible that say, This, this day have I begotten thee, Psalm 2, Acts 13, This day have I begotten thee, Hebrews chapter 1. That is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ being sat on the throne of God and announced to the universe that this is my Son. This day have I begotten thee. When he was raised from the dead and set at God's right hand, that proved he was the Son of God with power. Amen. That's what the Bible says. Acts chapter 13 tells us Psalm 2 was fulfilled with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's take up another subject. We're glad the Reformed Baptists emphasize God's sovereignty and the salvation of sinners. 
We're glad they teach the first three points of tulip Calvinism as we do. Though we do it from the Bible and not because John Calvin or the Synod of Dort ever came up with such an acrostic for salvation. Tulip, T-U-L-I-P, T, total depravity, U, un, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints. We're thankful that Reformed Baptists teach man is totally depraved, unable to do anything to please God for salvation, that election is unconditional because if God were to have looked for conditions to elect men, He would have elected none because there were none that did good, no, not one, and limited atonement, the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, or His death on the cross, was only for those that God had assigned to Him to die a covenant death of substitution for, and that is the elect of God. We agree with those three points, and we disagree with the last two. When they use the words irresistible grace, they apply that to conversion. That God will irresistibly bring everyone to conversion to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in truth with saving faith. And then their P is perseverance of the saints, that God will cause all of the elect to persevere in righteousness, and depending on which one you're reading, to increase and to grow in greater and greater holiness and never to fall away, to persevere. We cannot find those two things taught in the New Testament. We deny them this way. Irresistible grace, our dear Reformed Baptist brethren, we apply to regeneration, that God will regenerate His elect irresistibly and none of them will resist the work of the Holy Spirit and His power in giving them a new nature. We believe, in the last point, that God will preserve His elect, and none of them will fall into eternal condemnation, but will be preserved in the love of God and in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, no matter how much they might fall away from the truth of the gospel. Let's consider it in a different way. Our doctrine, Reformed Baptist brethren, is understood by looking at our documents on our website of Calvinism, Arminianism compared to the truth. The seven proofs of unconditional salvation. Those seven proofs. Man is unable to do anything to please God for salvation. The Bible expressly denies man's will and works to be involved in salvation. Faith and good works are the result of salvation, not conditions for it. Jesus Christ saves by Himself. The gospel and the ordinances of the the New Testament were never designed to give eternal life. There are examples in the Bible of unconverted elect, and this is the only plan of salvation that gives God all the glory, which he so plainly says must be true of the doctrine of salvation. We also reconcile the scriptures by looking at five phases of salvation instead of just one. We wish that you would look at our document called The Five Phases of Salvation on our website, or in any Google search, the five phases of salvation, which show us that from eternity, God purposed the salvation of His elect. Jesus Christ died for them legally on the cross. They are regenerated vitally in time. They are converted by the gospel to varying degrees. And there is a final phase of salvation that is yet to occur when we are glorified and our bodies are adopted and we're in the presence of the Lord. We would ask you to look at our example of Cornelius as a Bible example and a Bible testimony of a man and how he is saved. And we would ask you to look at the description of Cornelius given in the first four verses of Acts chapter 10 
and to realize that only a born-again man could do those things. He feared God, and he prayed to God always, and his prayers and his almsgiving came up into heaven. The sacrifice of the wicked and the prayers of the wicked are an abomination to God. But the prayers and the giving of Cornelius came up into heaven, and he feared God with all his house, Romans 3.18 tells us that a wicked, the wicked cannot fear God, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Cornelius was already born again before he ever heard the gospel preached by Peter. Right. We wish that you would look at our document called Problem Text, so that you could see how we handle other verses about salvation in the New Testament. You could look at our document, Why No Invitation. Google search or a website search will find it for you easily. And the role of good works. Now let's quickly look at why, where we differ from the Reformed Baptists on salvation. Turn to John chapter 1 and verse 13. And I am pleased to be able to tell you again, and I think I've mentioned this twice already in this series, that John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, on his deathbed preached his final message from John 1.13. And I remember as a 19-year-old when I couldn't afford anything, but I could afford books because that's one place I would spend my money buying the works of John Bunyan and finding his final sermon from the 13th verse of John chapter 1. We deny what the Reformed Baptists believe about regeneration. They believe that the gospel is the means of God regenerating sinners, and we deny. They believe that a man dead in trespasses and sins having the gospel preached to him, and they will vary on what that gospel includes and how it's to be preached. But when the gospel's preached to him, God the Holy Spirit accompanies that gospel, and that man hearing it believes it, and in that process simultaneously is regenerated by hearing and believing the gospel. We deny. We've just already denied by giving you the example of Cornelius, because long before we heard the gospel from Peter's mouth, he was already born again and showing the fruits of that new birth. Right, right. But I want to turn to John 1.13. And Reformed Baptists should appreciate John 1.13, or at least part of it with us. John 1.13, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The twelfth verse is describing the sons of God. It describes those that believe on His name, present tense. And it tells us in the thirteenth verse something that happened to them before they believed, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's four options in that verse of how people become the sons of God. We choose the last. They choose the third. The Catholics choose the second. And there are some nutcases that choose the first. And for those of you that are attentive and read my updates, you read one, didn't you, a couple of weeks ago making fun of our trip to Asia to preach the gospel in their opinion to those that didn't deserve to ever hear it. Four ways of being born again in this verse. The first one is a problem the Jews had. They thought by their blood connection to Abraham that they were automatically the children of God. But the Bible tells us not of blood. So we rule that out. There are white supremacists called British Israelites who believe that we Anglo-Saxons are the lost ten tribes of Israel and we're the sons of God by our first birth, by our blood. You don't want to know what they think of the other races. 
They think that the Jews are the children of the devil, literally, by sex between Satan and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They are the descendants of Cain. They're called British Israelites. It's Herbert W. Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God. He's dead. And other groups like that. The followers of this craziness are not numbered in the thousands, but in the millions. The Jews did it in the apostles' time. They thought because they were the children of Abraham, that was good enough. But it wasn't good enough. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, as we're going to learn in Romans chapter 9. Neither because they are the the seed of Abraham are they all children of God. All taught in Romans 9, but taught right here in three words, not of blood. Next, John 1.13, nor of the will of the flesh. When you are born to your parents the first time, you are given a will of the flesh. The flesh is your sinly, your sinful principle that's within you from your first birth. It's what you have by nature. It's your flesh. Your flesh is the sin principle that's in your being that causes you to love sin and to hate God. It's not of the will of the flesh. So there is nothing that you can do to the will of the flesh to get to, to have the will of the flesh convinced to do something in order to be born again. Because it says not of the will of the flesh. Not of the will of the flesh. The flesh is flesh. Verse 6 of chapter 3 tells us that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He that is in the flesh, according to Romans chapter 8, cannot please God. So unless you're going to teach a a gospel that you have to do something that displeases God in order to be born again, you're dead. You're in trouble. Because Romans 8 says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So this second condemnation here, or this second refutation of a way of being born again, is the will of the flesh. There is nothing you can do to persuade a man in the flesh to do something in order to be born again because it says it's not of the will of the flesh. It wouldn't matter what you get him to say. It wouldn't matter what you get the flesh to believe. It's insufficient. It's ruled out. God doesn't accept it. Right. Now the will of the flesh. The Reformed Baptists would agree with us when we look at this expression against the Arminians. But something that we have tried to teach And the more you read and the more you talk to Calvinists, the more you'll learn. If you scratch a Calvinist, if you scratch some of the paint off a Calvinist, you're going to find an Arminian. Because they don't really differ. Just push them. Just push them about the role of the gospel. And you'll find out that they're the same. That by preaching the gospel, you can get a man in the flesh to believe it in order to become a man in the spirit. Because who in the world is believing it? There's only two options. When you preach the gospel to a man, either it is the will of the flesh that is responding, or it is the will of the Spirit. And if it's the will of the Spirit, it was born of the Spirit. It wasn't born of your gospel. You had to have that Spirit beforehand in order for it to respond to the gospel. Jesus would say in John 8, 47, John 8, 47, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. But you have to be of God first. You have to have that new man, that spiritual man, that 1 Corinthians 2, 15 tells us, discerns all things. Because the natural man 
the man of the flesh that you have by your first birth, the preaching of the gospel to him is foolishness. Neither can he know it because it's spiritually discerned. So we believe that God regenerates a man by the power, by his own power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, giving him a new nature. So that when the gospel is preached, men with a new nature are able to respond to that gospel, to believe that gospel, to discern the things contained in those good tidings, and to believe them and obey them. The natural man will not. We don't believe that there is any method to move a natural man. There is no way of preaching the law, then preaching grace. You cannot use evangelistic methods, and even if you were able to bring someone back from the dead, Jesus said that would not be good enough, because if they don't hear Moses and the prophets... They will not hear, though a man come back from the dead. Luke chapter 16, about verse 31. So it rules out preaching to the person himself in the flesh to get him in the spirit because it says, not of the will of the flesh. Then it says, not of the will of man, nor of the will of man. This is those, like the Roman Catholics, who take the little baby. This is not Reformed Baptists, because they hold the believer's baptism. But these are those that they name themselves after. The Reformed churches and the Roman Catholic mother church of the Reformed churches. Parents bring a little baby and bring it into the church in a pretty christening gown. It is such a delightful service. If you were to read about it and all of the steps they go through, and they take that little baby and they have water poured upon its forehead or sprinkled upon it, and that little baby is born again. That is Lutheran doctrine. That is Luther's catechism. That is Catholic doctrine. That that little baby is born again. At that moment, water is applied to its forehead. Because that's the will of man. See, the little baby doesn't have any will at all involved. Its will isn't exercising itself yet except to scream when you pour water on its forehead and shove salt into its mouth if you're Roman Catholic and the other 150 things they do to get a baptism done that are outside the Bible. It's very entertaining reading to go read the ritual of a Roman Catholic baptism. Nor of the will of man. So it can't be by parents bringing a baby to have something done to the baby who can't exercise his own will of the flesh, which was already denied with the words, nor of the will of the flesh. But here's nor of the will of man. It doesn't matter that you have two godparents standing there who swear in the presence of God that they are going to bring that little baby up, if the parents don't, to fear the Lord. Because it's not of the will of man. It's of God. The Reformed Baptists are condemned by the second. I said it third earlier and I I made a mistake. I'm correcting myself. They're condemned by the second. The Catholics are condemned by the third, nor of the will of man, because they have a priest involved and parents involved and godparents involved, and it's not the will of man doing something on your behalf when you're a baby. I love the Word of God. It is sweet to my taste, and it's like honey to my mouth to read in one verse, one verse, Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we cut through with not of the will of man, we cut through 90% of all who claim to be Christians. We With not of the will of the flesh, we cut through another 95% of those left. 
With not of blood, we wouldn't even call them Christians, but not of blood, we cut through some of those cult-like beliefs that it's by your first birth. It's of God. That's where we stand. God regenerates whom He will, when He will, where He will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, instigated and activated and directed by the voice of the Son of God. Because John chapter 5 and verse 25 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Marvel not at this, but the hour, that's John 5, 25. Marvel not at this, the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. We believe that it is by the voice of the Son of God, directing the Holy Spirit of God to regenerate by the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, and the Bible describes in Ephesians chapter 1 that it takes the same power that raised the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ up and set Him in heavenly places to regenerate a sinner dead in trespasses and sins and raise him up and set him in heavenly places. It's the same power. And Paul prayed that the Ephesian saints might come to know what is the, listen to the words, exceeding greatness of his power. To us who believe. If you believe, it's because the power has already been exercised by God on your behalf so that you are called a new creation in Christ Jesus, created unto good works. We don't need a cure for our state of death and trespasses and sins. We need a resurrection. We don't need the gospel to tell us what to do. We need life. The last thoughts your father had, Brother Leon, was the lie of the devil. Out of Genesis chapter 3, thou shalt not surely die. And he would ask me, the Arminians are still preaching that, aren't they? Yes, sir. They still are. Because if you're dead, you don't need a cure, and you don't need a protocol, and you don't need a therapy to go home and put into practice for a few weeks. You need life. It's called a resurrection, which is another name for regeneration. Because that means you're generated again. It means being born again. You didn't have anything to do with your first birth, and you don't have anything to do with your second birth. God speaks you into life with the power of the voice of the Son of God and the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit, then you're ready and able to hear the preaching of the gospel. He doesn't use the preaching of the gospel or it would be the will of the flesh. It'd be the will of the flesh hearing it, believing it, and becoming spirit. But that which is born of the flesh is flesh, And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And John 3, 8 puts it this way. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit operating when and where He pleases that we are born again. We're dead in trespasses and sins by our first birth, and we can't cooperate or help God in our regeneration at all. And God hasn't chosen to use the gospel. God's chosen the gospel to bring life and immortality to light through those that are already born again. Right. This we, we deny gospel means of regeneration. And this is not a message on gospel means of regeneration or the spirit means of regeneration. It's a skeletal outline of where we differ from the Reformed Baptists. 
The natural man cannot assist or respond to the gospel. He's unable. The gospel is the good news to the elect about salvation. They are sacramentalists. Reformed Baptists and Arminians and Calvinists are sacramentalists when it comes to the gospel because they believe preaching the gospel is a means of grace. It conveys grace from the preacher-priest to the hearer-communicant. Scratch a Calvinist and you'll find an Arminian. Scratch him deep enough and you'll find a Catholic. Because their theology is this simple. If that priest does not carry his holy water in the form of the gospel, souls will drop into hell and God will lose the names that he intended for the book of life. They say, well, no, God's guaranteed it. Oh, so then we have a fatalistic approach to the ministry that no matter what I do, God's going to guarantee that I get to everyone that is supposed to hear the gospel? You're caught one way or the other. God is going to regenerate all of his elect in that third phase of salvation called the vital phase. He's going to do that. It's going to be a Cornelius. He's never heard of Peter. He hasn't heard the gospel. But he fears God. He's a worshiper of Jehovah. He doesn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ until Peter tells him. But he's already born again. And when he hears it, he believes so quickly. And then God confirms with signs the gift of tongues upon him that Peter could baptize him with assurance. You know, the great men, the so-called great men of reformed faith very seldom distinguish between regeneration and conversion. John Kelvin, Jonathan Edwards did not see a clear distinction at all. It's well known in theological circles and reading that those two men did not see that difference. And that is a fundamental difference in the Bible. The difference between regeneration and conversion. Jesus told Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. That was after three and a half years of ministry with the Lord Jesus Christ. Did he need to be regenerated? Or did he need to be converted from his impulsive promises of what he was going to do for the Lord and his horrible denying of ever knowing Jesus of Nazareth? He needed to be saved from that. When we take it, when we find a brother that's in error and bring him back to the truth, the Bible says that's converting a sinner from the error of his ways and hiding a multitude of sins. James 5, 19 and 20. That's conversion. It's not regeneration. He's already a brother in James 5, 18. Our work in James 5, 19 and 20 is just bringing him back to the truth. Conversion is the educational process of a person learning what God wants them to do with their life, what God has done for them. Regeneration is the giving of life. It's resurrection. It's being born again. Those are terms that where, where we are entirely passive. You do not assist your resurrection. You did not assist your first birth. For more about that, on our website, the truth about being born again. Full-blown, lengthy slide presentation. We deny faith is the condition, the instrument, or the means of legal justification before God. For it is merely one of the first acts of assurance and our evidence only. We hold to eternal justification. That when God chose the elect in Christ Jesus before the world began, they were, in the eternal sense of the word, already justified. By the very fact that He chose them by covenant in His Son to die for them before the world began is eternal justification in the eternal phase. Now John Gill, John Brine, Baptist forefathers, and others like them stated it very clearly. It was called the doctrine of eternal justification. They were considered high Calvinists by doing so. Do you know what that means? They were not like the Calvinists. They were different than most of the Reformed. 
They understood that God, choosing His elect in Christ, and that eternal union that the elect had with the Lord Jesus Christ, meant that their standing from God's eternal purpose was already one of justification before Him. Then Jesus died on the cross. And there on the cross, the legal satisfaction was made for our sins in the fullest sense of the word, so that Jesus could say, It is finished! And Baptist forefathers like Samuel Richardson write books called Justification by Christ Alone. Because he saw it all at the cross. That's because he's focusing on the legal phase of our justification. The vital phase of our justification is when we are given in the new birth a new nature that is perfectly righteous. Ephesians 4.24, I've told you this so many times. The new man which is created in righteousness and true holiness. And see, for you to be given a new nature... In, new, in the new birth, which comes before you ever exercise faith. But when you're given that new man, and he's created in righteousness, that's the result of justification. Purposed to an eternity, which is as good as it being done, right. because God can call those things which be not as though they were, because he's purposed to do it. Legally paid for by the death of Christ, then you get a new nature that's righteous. Then you hear the gospel and you believe. And your belief is the first step in justifying yourself to your own conscience, in laying hold of justification, in laying hold of eternal life, as the Bible would say. Abraham was justified and a righteous man well before Genesis 15 and verse 6, when he believed the promise that his seed would be like the stars of the heaven in multitude, because he had already believed God and was listed in Hebrews 11 for things that he did before Genesis 15. The Apostle Paul used the example of Genesis 15, verse 6, because God himself pulled that event out in the life of Abraham in order to make it an example to the Jews later who were trusting in Moses' law. And it is for that reason that there is so much about faith in the book of Romans. Because Paul had to correct the Jewish excess of wanting to continue to trust Moses' law for justification. And there was no one going to be justified by that law. And he points out that Abraham was declared to be just by his act of faith. But now when you get away from the Jewish temptation and the Jewish theological errors, and you get over to the book of James, you have James saying about the same man, that he wasn't justified until chapter 20. Abraham pops into your Bible, by the way, since I don't want you to look down. You can look later. You should look later, so that I don't lie to you. Abraham pops into your Bible as Abram in Genesis chapter 11. God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees in chapter 11. Chapters 12 and 13 and 14, God's dealing with Abram, blessing Abram, leading Abram. Abram's worshiping God. God's speaking to Abram. They have a, they, the, Abraham's walking with God. And Genesis 15, 6, God took Abram outside and said, Count the stars. Give me the number. So shall thy seed be. Paul picks that in Romans and says that's when he was justified. But that was just the evidence of justification. That was to show that he was a justified man. I preached this at length 
when I worked my way through Romans 3 and 4 to you about nine months ago. But then over in Genesis chapter 20, God tells Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering before me. And Abram, Abraham now takes Isaac up and raises the knife to slay his son. And God calls out of heaven and says, Now I know, now I know that thou fearest me. James, in James chapter 2, points to Genesis 20 as when Abraham was justified. And says, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, is, is James contradicting Paul? Or is James adding to Paul? And we're supposed to be smart enough to reconcile the two of them together. Or do we want to throw one of those epistles out and call it an epistle of straw and write nasty, scurrilous things against it? Both of those things are evidences of an elect, justified man. The first one is faith. But to faith we are to add virtue and knowledge and godliness and patience and temperance and brotherly kindness and charity. Right. And Abraham added to his faith so that his faith took on some real meaning because barely believing is nothing. There are those that believe in John chapter 8, but they're children of the devil. The flesh can believe, but it is no lasting effect because it is not belief that that measures or registers with God. It's a foolish, frivolous, temporary, carnal belief. Not one of the new man that latches on to the Lord Jesus Christ and loves Him for who He is. They were looking for a Savior and a Messiah and a Prince and a Deliverer in Israel. But the Lord Jesus Christ, by just poking those so-called believers, and the Bible calls them that, in in John chapter 8 and verse 31 and 32, it only takes them a couple of verses to poke them a little bit, and they want to kill them. We do not believe that faith is the condition, nor is it the instrument, nor is it the means of our standing before God. It is merely one of the first acts of assurance and evidence only that we are the justified children of God. We hold to eternal justification as our fathers John Gill and John Bryan, and not because of them, and we hold to legal justification to cross, like our father Samuel Richardson, but we don't do it because of them, and if we never found them, it wouldn't mean anything to us, except a little bit of confirming evidence that we're not alone to Reformed Baptists who want to claim those men as Reformed Baptists. But those men did not believe that faith was the means or the instrument or the, or the condition for justification before God, especially Samuel Richardson, who was a signer of that first Baptist London Confession of 1644. We believe that faith is the evidence of justification. We believe that faith is the evidence of salvation. But without adding works to it, it's worthless. It's nothing but a devil's faith. The devils believe and tremble, but it gets them nowhere. And I'm saying all of this because the Reformers took justification by faith as their pet doctrine, their sacred cow. We deny it. Martin Luther had such a poor understanding of it that he disliked the epistle of James. If you read the preface to James from his 1522 edition that I sent you recently. We deny that grace is irresistible in the conversion of the elect as the Bible in both testaments shows God's elect barely converted, not converted, or falling from conversion. We apply the irresistible nature 
of God's grace to regeneration, not to conversion. In brief, the generation that was in the wilderness that came out of Egypt by Moses, they all died because they displeased God, but they were not all reprobates. They ate and drank of Christ, and God loved them. Deuteronomy chapter 7. He had called His Son out of Egypt, involving Jesus and involving His people. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 5. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 tell us about that generation. They did not realize God's best for their life, and they missed God's rest for them. But they were God's children, and they did not believe the gospel. We're going to get to Romans chapter 11 that tells us about another generation of Jews that did not believe the gospel. They were enemies of the gospel, but they were beloved for the Father's sakes because they were in the election. Romans 11, 25 through 28. The Apostle Paul taught churches and saw them fall away from the truth. Galatians fell away from the truth. They added circumcision and keeping the law of Moses to the finished work of Christ so that Paul would say, Christ is become of none effect to you. Now that does not mean that those that were elect and justified in the churches of Galatia were not going to be in heaven when they died or that their names were taken in the book of life. It means that they had lost the gospel of Jesus Christ because the the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot allow an admixture of Christ plus Christ and works, Christ and circumcision. As soon as you add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ, you corrupt it so that Paul says you've lost Christ and you've lost grace in their knowledge, in their gospel, in their doctrine. Not their name being scratched out of the book of life, but those poor Galatians had lost, had fallen from grace is the Bible expression. And they had their faith overthrown in 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18. Those men that I mentioned to you last Lord's Day who preached that the resurrection was past and overthrow the faith of some. Why the Corinthian church was having a problem with their faith being overthrown. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul said, when the whole chapter, 58 verses about the resurrection of the body, the apostle Paul said, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I've preached unto you. But he goes on in verses 12 through 16 or 12 through 19 it is. In that same chapter he says, If Christ be risen from the dead, then why are there some teaching among you that Christ that there is no resurrection of the dead? Because if there's no resurrection of the dead, ye are yet in your sins. They had fallen from the gospel. They had become unconverted from a state of conversion. I'm I'm warned as a minister in 1 Timothy 4.16 that if I don't take heed to myself and unto the doctrine, souls will be lost. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. A minister that is slothful in his personal life or slothful with his doctrine or slothful with both can cost people their souls. Now do you know what I'm saying when I say that? They can cost them their practical Conversion. They can cost them their knowledge of the truth of the gospel. They can cost them their walking with God. Can't take their names of the book of life. That's dependent upon one pastor, the Lord Jesus Christ. One apostle and high priest. Without having the time to go into all the details and preach all these sermons all over again, 
I'm just making reference to things that are stated in the Bible. We deny that grace is irresistible in the conversion of men because the Bible gives examples of those barely converted, not converted, and falling from conversion. P, we deny the elect shall persevere and continue on in sanctification to greater and greater holiness because Scripture shows some cut off in their sins. I, I Don't ever forget this because when somebody tells you that God will bring all of the elect to repentance before they die, you are sounding like Jacobus Arminius himself. You are sounding like someone that believes you can lose your salvation, but God is going to get you to repent and ask for forgiveness before that moment when you draw your last breath. That's not the case. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I've given this to you so many times, I fear to bring it up again. I'd like you to look at it though, 1 Corinthians 11, because you should remember this. Perseverance. What in the world... You know, some of the, some of the Calvinists are smart enough to know that God's elect don't all persevere. And so they say, well, all we meant was preservation. Well, if all you meant was preservation, then use the right word. Right. You have chosen the wrong word and the word stinks. God has not guaranteed all of his elect will persevere in holiness and righteousness. He calls us to persevere. Right. He calls us to continue. He calls us to endure. He calls us to be overcomers. But He hasn't guaranteed that we will. Right. These people didn't. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. These Corinthians were misusing the Lord's Supper. Because of that, the Lord had come among them, and many of them were weak, physically weak. Many of them were sick, and many slept. Many of them were already dead and buried in the church cemetery because of misusing the Lord's Supper. God did not cause them to persevere. Their lack of perseverance brought His judgment upon them, and they were dead. But it goes to tell us very carefully here, they were dead because they were being chastened by the Lord, that they wouldn't be condemned with the world. Because if you're not chastened, then you're a bastard and not a son, and you're not one of God's elect. This passage right here shows me God's elect, not persevering, being chastened by God with the extreme level of chastening, the same level of chastening in the wilderness when a whole generation above 20 years of age fell dead, that these Corinthians fell dead. But they were not going to be condemned with the world. They had been chastened by God for foolishly, profanely misusing the Lord's Supper. We believe the scriptural doctrine that God preserves His saints against any loss. And that's the word that's used in 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 2 Timothy 4.18 and Jude 1. The Lord Jesus Christ said He would lose none of them, so we believe that we're going to be preserved by God through the 
substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but God has not guaranteed that we're going to persevere or be overcomers. He presses us to be such. He exhorts us to be such. He offers rewards if we will be such. He threatens if we will not be overcomers, but He doesn't guarantee it. We're thankful that the Lord has shown us what He has. Amen. Regeneration is by the power of the Spirit of God and has to take place before the gospel can ever be of benefit to any man. The Apostle Paul said that he always triumphed when he preached the gospel to those that weren't born again. He was the savour of death and of death. To those that were born again, to those that were elect, justified, born again, hearers, he was the savour of life unto life. I say this so many times, but this is a, this, this is a fine point of theology about regeneration and, and conversion being separated, one always having to come before the other, and the other occurring in varying degrees based on the faithfulness of the man of God preaching to them and their faithfulness in applying themselves to it, this fine distinction separates us from Calvinists. You scratch a Calvinist on this point, you'll find an Arminian. If you move on from this point of regeneration and conversion, before I leave 2 Corinthians 2 where I was describing the savour of death and a death and the savour of life and a life, nowhere does it say the savour of death unto life. The Apostle Paul was never a savour of death unto life. He never ran into a dead sinner and got him into a state of life. But he always triumphed in Christ. Because when somebody rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul could say of them, you've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. We believe that justification by faith is only the subjective aspect of that wonderful doctrine that you realize in your heart by having the evidence, the first little bit, the, the basis or the foundation of evidence that you are one of God's justified children. Faith is the first evidence. But if you want to be justified like James described Abraham, then you've got to add to your faith works. Because without works, faith is dead being alone, and it's no more than a devil's faith. Both of them are the evidences of justification, not conditions for it. I tried to briefly explain that to you. Abraham's in Genesis 11. The statement that is quoted repeatedly by Paul in Romans and Galatians is in Genesis 15.6. Abram is, is worshiping God and walking with God, approved by God, accepted by God, and listed in Hebrews 11 for things done before Genesis 15.6. That was just a signal event in the life of Abraham that God pulled out for Paul to use later to condemn the Jews who looked to Abraham as their father, but wanted to attach themselves soteriologically to Moses instead of Abraham. That means for salvation. They wanted to attach themselves to Moses instead of to Abraham. We believe that God's grace is irresistible when it comes to regeneration. When God the Holy Spirit comes upon a man to regenerate him, it's an instantaneous act of recreation of that man so that he's born again with a new nature inside. It's the new man. He doesn't take human cooperation. There's no human efforts used with it. God does it. And we believe that God will preserve His saints, but He hasn't guaranteed their perseverance. We are to apply ourselves when we come into this house to be reminded of things so that we will go out of here and continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel.
These are the things God has taught us. We're so thankful for verses like John 1.13 and other verses that I've mentioned, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's where we stand. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Amen.